unfortunately, in so many of these spaces, you don't get to see a black man, especially as a boy, right? A black boy, a, a black young man, you can take advice from anyone. But when you get that from a black man, hopefully it sticks a little harder. You know, you, you come across someone like me, hopefully. And you see, we have the exact same journey. I come from the same hood, the same block. Like there are conversations I can have with you that hopefully resonate in a different way. And unfortunately, it's missing. Hey, this is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information and each other. I'm your host, Curtis Rouser. In 2004, as a freshman in college, Kevin Benoit created Parlay Magazine. The goal? To empower, entertain, educate, motivate, and engage black and brown lives within the media industry. A first-generation Haitian-American living in New York City, Kevin has always had a passion for helping people, especially young people who remind him of himself. That's why he's recently branched out to found Parlay Endeavors, all while continuing to run Parlay Magazine. The new venture makes youth-centered investments. Today, Kevin joins Epicenter's Ambar Castillo to discuss his journey. From navigating the intricate world of inner-city schools to facing censorship, Kevin's story sheds light on the importance of authenticity, determination, and the belief that every voice deserves to be heard. Let's dive in. Could you take us to the very beginning of your journey with um, Parley Magazine? How did it come about? Technically, it wasn't Parlay Magazine yet. My journey in media, without any sort of training or background or anything like that, I went to high school in Brooklyn, Wingate High School. Our school was being phased out. It was around that time where charter schools were starting to pop up in the city. Schools were being given grades. So Wingate High School was one of those schools that was told that they had to shut down. So I was one of the last three or four graduating classes there. However, that was that was just side stuff. As a student, we really didn't understand or necessarily care. But our school had a school newspaper, uh, the Wingate World, which I knew I wanted to write for this publication if I was ever there. I end up doing a story about Ja Rule and Ashanti and Murder, Inc. and how great of a record label it was, because that was around the time they had first launched right around 2000. And I'm not sure what happened, but by the time the story got published, it just wasn't in my words anymore. It, it, it was severely edited and it was just it was not what I expected or anticipated. So I decided to start a competing publication. Do you remember what was edited out or the gist of what the issue was? The story was probably a little too gangster, too much gangster rap in the article, even though Jaru was definitely more of a. Uh, a R&B rapper at the time. He was Drake before Drake. But realistically, they they just didn't like how hood my voice was, right? Like, I come from Brooklyn. I am of Brooklyn. So my stories were always going to have a different type of lens. And where in Brooklyn? I grew up in Crown Heights. So at the time, I was definitely ingrained in that culture and, and that that area. I lived around the corner from Prospect Heights and Cloud Bar in high school. So it just didn't make sense to me that this was a publication for Brooklyn students about the Brooklyn high school experience. And we weren't talking about hip hop music. 
So if you can take us back then to that moment when you were facing, you were facing up against this censorship and started, you know, decided to start your own, what, what was the precursor to Parlay Magazine? Could you explain a little bit more about those circumstances and who was affected and, and how, what that was like, what you were up against? It's an establishment, right? Like education, it, especially DOE schools, they are established. I mean, charter schools are establishment, right? But in this situation, I was in a DOE school. They already had their systems in place. And then I was coming in with these two black kids who were, I mean, we, we all had good grades. We all were promising students, but we were still, you know, a little bit rogue. And we were basically starting this thing to not start trouble, but to get the conversation going. And initially it was like, this can't happen. This can't even get off the ground. Who was telling you this? The principal. And I, I mean, for them, it was like we were coming in and just messing up everything. And what ended up being the case was we, we put together a pretty solid publication without knowing what we were doing. And at the time, it was, you know, it was all on Microsoft Word and, and just printed copies. But, but we were able to get quick support from the students and even support from outside. We, we ended up. I mean, part of it is like just being young, not even realizing what you're doing. We, um, at the time, we were fans of Boondo- Boondocks Comics. We called Universal Press Syndicate. They ended up approving us to use the Boondocks Comics in the school publication. We had students, again, hip hop was such a big part of culture. We had students creating raps and battling on the back page. We had a section called 16 Bars. We were writing horoscopes. That was part of it. So it was like just evolved into this passion for writing and this love. And I, I was already like writing short stories and things like that. But this became, oh, this is something I could really see myself doing because I can get the people going. I can I can move teams with this. Right. I can move my peers with this. How did you get the funding for these issues, especially as a student? Didn't need funding because it was all it was all school resources. And that's why they were technically able to shut it down. We could have gotten the funding outside and we could have kept going because realistically, we had gotten big enough where we could have got advertising. But essentially what happened was the school principal decided that Kevin's a graduate. We can shut this thing down. Was this part of what motivated you to get into education first as a teacher and then I I think a little bit of education policy. Could you speak to that? A big part of it for me was always just not seeing enough faces that look like mine. I was lucky enough to go to a school like Wingate, which was pretty diverse staff-wise. And when I think about that experience, I can't recall any of the Black teachers making me feel like I couldn't do it. It was never, no, you can, or, or it's not going to happen. It was like, okay, it's a good goal. Let's make it happen, right? Like, and it was all positive, and it, there were never any that, that kind of hindered me or, or didn't have those expectations of me. So I wanted to walk into these buildings and provide the same thing. And I, unfortunately, in so many of these spaces, you don't get to see a black male, especially as a boy, right, a black boy, a, a black young man, you can take advice from anyone. 
But when you get that from a black man, hopefully it sticks a little harder. You know, you, you come across someone like me, hopefully. And you see, we have the exact same journey. I come from the same hood, the same block. Like there are conversations I can have with you that hopefully resonate in a different way. And unfortunately, it's missing. Could you speak to your nonprofit Parlay and Endeavors? Can you tell us a bit about what you work on there? Missionaries to give scholarships and grants to young people who want to pursue careers in media, journalism, or entrepreneurship. So I look back to 17-year-old me and I, I try to figure out what it is I would have needed. I started this thing. And like I said, I made a, a lot of mistakes. It's the funny thing about running something without mentors, right? Like you're literally going into this blind and you can read all the journalism for dummy books you want. Or, you know, I read all those things. First of all, everything is constantly changing, right? Like media is constantly changing. And anybody who's been in it for the last 10 years, even five years to tell you, it's changed so much since they started. So I started in print. Then transitioning online was just like, this wasn't what I went into it for. I didn't know anything about online. I really didn't know anything about print, but I really don't know anything about online. And a lot of times it's, you want to start something as a young person and, and you know, you don't have the guidance. So you decide to just quit, right? Like I was never that person. I'm going to figure this thing out. We're going to put it out there. Hopefully the people, you know, respond, hopefully it leads somewhere. And in this case, thankfully it did. Here I am 20 years later. But I, again, I want to be that person for young people so that they they don't need to make these small mistakes. And so in addition to the scholarships and grants, we give them mentors. They get a mentor for a year. They get to ask whatever questions of that mentor. They can reach out to me directly. If I don't have the answers, I'll help find and, and put them with someone. You know, one of our, our grant winners wants to open a beauty salon. We have her currently interning with a black woman who owns a beauty salon. So she's going there a few days out the week. She wants to make wigs. She wants to do those things. She's learning firsthand how to do it. So it's just things like that. You know, the scholarship winners, it's a little harder. They're away at school, but they, they're talking to a mentor at least once a month. Just feedback, guidance. We're also doing these poetry events, poetry slams. Like I mentioned, 13 to 19-year-olds. We just did our, our first summer series with that. And that basically was a poetry event in each borough, making it easy and accessible for our young people and then giving them the opportunity. Our finals were at, was at the world famous New Yorkian Poets Cafe. And I want to know about that. What do you because I, I remember going years back and watching my cousin perform and even just sitting in the audience. It, it just has this feel like it's so legendary how what do you remember about that experience and what was it like from for students who might have talked to you about that i know it was nerve-wracking you know you get in that building and first of all people talk about it in, in such a great grand light right like so you you get in there and you have to, to do some poems you know we had young people i know they had them, those poems memorized but the nerves got to them they have to read off their phone or read it off paper it's just what happens. But that exposure, that 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 was the important part for me. Right. Like I want to put you in this this building so that you don't have to wait until you're 25 to be here. Right. Like so we had a 13 year old on that stage. We had a 16, 19 year old. Right. Like I want to give them 
and experience that they don't have to wait until they're a certain age to get. And even, you know, part of my love with poetry, I, I was never really a performer. It was just I saw the potential in poetry. I saw what poetry could do if you can figure out that you had a voice. I I was just wondering if if you could speak to some of the lessons you learned um, running a publication for 20 years, which is no easy feat or, you know, nearly 20 years. That's another hour worth of convo. <laughs> it's, it, so it's evolved so much. And even for me, like I said, we, we started out in newsprint. So we learned so many lessons doing it in print and in all these evolutions of print. You know, we went from just getting images from publicists to doing photo shoots. You know, that was a photo shoot with Lil Wayne. That was a photo shoot with Birdman from Cash Money Records. We had everyone on these covers from Tyler Perry to Tyrese. So we, we had a lot of iterations. We were able to basically shop these directly to record labels. And it was a way for them and their artists to tell their stories to my audience. You know, if Lil Wayne had an album coming out next month, let's put him on the cover and people will read this story, want to buy the album. So we had the record labels advertised on the back pages, on the insides. It worked. Then when we went online, advertising stopped. They already had platforms that they were advertising on that were online. So it already made sense. They didn't need to now work with Parlay. Facebook became the place to advertise. So realistically, we went from, say, 2013 to 2020 with almost no advertising at all, which is why I had to have a full time job. Right. Like it was at this point of I'm doing this, hoping it's going to work, trying to manage this thing while while not getting the support that, you know, at this point I've earned and, and should have gotten automatically. And then 2020 happened and George Floyd kind of changed the way advertisers spoke about black publications. And suddenly it became we need to spend our money there. Right. In 2020, I got my biggest advertising check. And in all honesty, 2020 was a year. Close friends will tell you I was thinking about selling the publication. Because it just wasn't making any money. And I was working a full-time job in the school. But we got our biggest check in 2020. All these conversations around advertising started popping up. And, you know, it looked like we had finally turned a corner. Take it back even, right? When we were doing it in print and we had the record labels fully supporting, they were pretty much investing in me and the product. You know, my audience is your target audience, right? Like, you know, we do this interview with Lil Wayne. These people are now going to be a little bit more invested in this album. They're going to buy it. They're going to listen, so on and so forth. I wouldn't still be in business all these years later if not for that initial support. For whatever reason, advertisers don't look at it this way now. You talk to some of these big companies, I won't mention any names, but you talk to some of these big companies, it's like, oh, your audience isn't big enough. The reality is you can advertise an ESPN the same way you can advertise a parlay. That investment, it's it's going to go twofold because now not only am I always going to support that company, but my readers will support that company. As they continue to grow, they'll see you in the newsletter. They'll see you on the website. They'll see you on our social media. 
that's the biggest possible investment you could do, right? Like you're on ESPN three times a day. No one's making that connection. It's just like, okay, this is just another ad. You're on Parlay Magazine. This is something that, yes, now I'm intrigued. Like if they're supporting them, maybe I need to support them as well, right? But for whatever reason, that is not how these conversations go. But you want to reach this black audience, you go to BET and they're not black owned. So who are you helping? You want to go to Complex. Complex isn't black owned. If you want to reach a black audience and support black businesses, you kind of have to go to the the black owned publications. And if, if you need help trying to figure it out, there's organizations out here that are that are doing the work. Right. Bomisi, Black Owned Media and Sustainability Institute is a great example of a company that's out here doing the work. You know, they they have a database of black and brown publishers who need the advertising, who have niche audiences, who are actively engaged in their product. And, uh, and again, Bomisi is not the only one. There are so many organizations that are doing this now, post all these commitments, you know, because there were all these million dollar commitments. And I don't know who's seen the money. I don't know if people have seen the money. Maybe BET has, <laughs> you know, it looks like they, they get more advertising every time I, I happen to turn BET on. But there's so many publications and, and so many people who are out here who are like me, 10, 15, 20 years in the game, who have the biggest audience they've ever had up, up to this point and still can't can't live off this. You just spoke about some of the challenges in unequal distribution of, of funding that disproportionately impact black and brown media that are for black and brown, uh, mostly black and brown communities um, as well. Like, what is it that keeps you going? Because passion can only go so far, right? It can only go so far, which is why I started the nonprofit as well, right? Like that adds to the passion, um, it helps fuel. Even that, like, you know, the funny thing about a nonprofit is, when it comes time to get grants and, and donations, people want to see how long you've been in business. They want to see what you accomplished. There are so many grants where you have to have a certain budget already, right? Like you need a two, three million dollar budget. We just started this year. Like how am I? Anyway. So, yes, that's part of the passion. But honestly, it is. It's the grants and it's the, the rare grant that comes in for, for um, the nonprofit. We did win. The Be Good Small Business Grant for 10000 this year, that helped um, with some of our scholarships. For the magazine, I was part of the Bomisi Accelerator this year. That was paramount this year. It was a, a $25,000 grant that went into the business. It was a great investment. But it, it's those types of things. Every once in a while, we get an advertisement that is a game. Honestly, Every advertisement we get is a game changer. And I think that's that's, you know, where this conversation has to go to for black media companies, some of these niche media companies. Every single advertisement we get is the biggest thing that's happened to us. Right. Like Ben and Jerry's advertised with us last year. Biggest advertisement I've gotten in my at that point it was 18 year history. It's insane that I've been around 18 years and I'm just, you know, but it's it's like it's like when you hear about the first black person to ever do stuff like you keep working, you keep working and you just hope someone notices it and you 
the passion has to if you if you're not passionate about it and, and hopefully people hear the passion and the voice and, and and all the work I'm doing but if you're not passionate about it you're not going to sustain I tell that to, to young folks trying to get in media or just trying to get entrepreneurship because whatever the business is unfortunately sometimes right if you're black you're brown you're person of color whatever the business is you're not passionate about it that money just might not come getting those investment dollars getting people to support getting those donations whether it's a non-profit whether it's a for-profit business it it takes three times the work that it takes some of our peers who don't look like us to read the latest from parley magazine or learn about parley endeavors make sure to check the link in our show notes. You can keep tabs on all of Kevin's work by following him on X. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. For more stories like this, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Caravica. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our podcast description.